you've ever wondered what Stacy Smith sounds like when she sings, you get to hear her. She sings uh, on these nights. Uh, and then the other thing is uh, the city. Uh, how many of you are now on the city? Because you've been growing in numbers. Okay if, you, okay, if you're not on the city and if you're a regular part of this community, I, I can't encourage you enough uh, to, to get on the city. We are about, I'm about to open up a, a very uh, <clears throat> major and shaping discussion for the New Heights community. Um, and the way that I'm going to engage in this discussion is only on the city. Uh, and it is something that uh, has significant impact to our community and to the community, uh, Alamo Heights, uh, in general. Um, and I've been wanting to have this conversation for um, many years now, and I finally got permission to start the conversation uh, from the leaders of the church that um, have more wisdom than I, um, and, and also God. Um, so uh, so we're, I'm going to begin that discussion, and I'm not going to tell you what it is either. You've got to go to the city um, and be a part of the city to find out what that is. So I encourage you to, uh, to join the city. There are other reasons to join it as well. Now, we are um, in Exodus chapter 14 uh, is where we find ourselves. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was listening to, uh, to the radio, to uh, NPR, and uh, I like to dial in NPR periodically and, and, uh, and hear their stories. And they have a great way. A lot of their shows have a great way of telling stories, and it helps me uh, as, as a pastor in the way in which I uh, shape my stories. Uh, yeah, that'd be great, Kev. Thanks. Um, this couple of weeks ago, uh, there was a Univision. Univision. Anybody familiar with uh, Univision? As us gringos would call it. Yeah. Um, Univision is uh, the biggest Spanish language uh, network that's out there. They're huge. They're based out of uh, Florida, um, and, and they're just ginormous in uh, in ratings um, and sponsors and things like that. One of the things that they are beginning to do is they are launching a 24-hour news network from Univision, but it's going to be in English. It's going to be geared and slanted towards the Hispanic life, but it will be in the English language. And so they're talking about this, and uh, the, the, the guy who's interviewing the person from Univision says, why are you doing it in English instead of Spanish? And he says, well, this is why. The, the studies show and the demographics show that when people come to America uh, who are Spanish speakers, the next generation speaks English. Now, they may speak, thank you, Kevin. They may speak um, both Spanish and English, but they primarily speak English and want to speak English. The next generation, a lot of times, doesn't even speak Spanish any longer. When I was in college, I had two really good friends. Uh, they're still good friends. Uh, one's name's Carlos, and one's name is John Ray. And uh, both of them called themselves coconuts because they believed they were brown on the outside but white on the inside. Um, both of them had grandparents who only spoke Spanish, no English whatsoever. Um, their, their parents spoke both, but neither of them could speak as much Spanish as I could. And I'm like, this is embarrassing, man. How do you go home and talk to your family? They're like, ah, we, get, we work it out. Um, and I'm like, this is... But that's kind of the, the transition when, when people begin to to assimilate into the country for the, the the longer you've been here, the more alike the rest of us you will be. How many of you can trace your roots back to, I don't know, France? Raise your hand if you can trace your roots back to France, your family heritage. We have no frogs in here. A couple of you. Um, how many Irish people? Ooh, my people. Um, yes. How many uh, Germans? 
Yeah, now we're talking South Texas, right? How many of you speak German? And y'all aren't even from Germany. Or you didn't raise your hand. Oh, you are. Okay. Um, how many of you speak French that are from France? Bonjour. Comment allez-vous? Je m'appelle Michel. Hospital. That's it. Um, yeah, because when we begin to become a part of this country, we begin to take on the attributes of the place that we live. Now, the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, had been in Egypt for 400 years. 400 years. Who they were when they arrived in Egypt was no longer who they were. They had changed. They had changed into looking more and more and more like the people of Egypt. So when God comes in and he begins to remove them from slavery... He's got a little work to do. He's not only got to get the people, uh, the Hebrew people out of Egypt, he's got to get the Egypt out of the Hebrew people. Right? You've heard that you can take the boy out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the boy, right? Or as I like to say with Stacy Smith, you can take Stacy out of Lorena, but you can't take Lorena out of Stacy. That he had to begin to remove those things that they were holding on to that he wanted to take out of them and to free them from. They had been slaves and oppressed for 400 years. For generations. And when he begins to remove them from this, he's got to go step by step by step. So today we find ourselves in chapter 14. And this is a, a large part of scripture. That I'm going to read. When word reached the king of Egypt that the Israelites were not planning to return to Egypt after three days, Pharaoh and his officials changed their mind. What have we done letting all these slaves get away, they asked. So Pharaoh called out his troops and led the chase in his chariot. He took with him 600 of Egypt's best chariots, along with the rest of the chariots of Egypt, each with a commander. The Lord continued to strengthen Pharaoh's resolve, and he chased after the people of Israel who had escaped so defiantly. All the forces in Pharaoh's armies, all his horses, chariots, and charioteers, were used in the chase. The Egyptians caught up with the people of Israel as they were camped beside the shore near Phiharathoth, across from Baal Zephon. As Pharaoh and his army approached, the people of Israel could see them in the distance, marching toward them. The people began to panic, and they cried out to the Lord for help. Then they turned against Moses and complained, Why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? Why did you make us leave? Didn't we tell you to leave us alone while we were still in Egypt? Our Egyptian slavery was far better than dying out here in the wilderness. But Moses told the people, don't be afraid. Just stand where you are and watch the Lord rescue you. The Egyptians that you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. You won't have to lift a finger in your defense. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the people to get moving. Use your shepherd's staff. Hold it out over the water and a path will open up before you through the sea. Then all the people of Israel will walk through on dry ground. Yet I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they will follow the Israelites into the sea. Then I will receive great glory at the expense of Pharaoh and his army's chariots and charioteers. When I am finished with Pharaoh and his army, all Egypt will know that I am the Lord. Then the angel of God who had been leading the people of Israel moved to a position behind them. And the pillar of cloud also moved around behind them. The cloud settled between the Israelite and Egyptian camps. As night came, the pillar of cloud turned into a pillar of fire, lighting the Israelite camp. But the cloud became darkness to the Egyptians, and they couldn't find the Israelites. 
Then Moses raised his hand over the sea, and the Lord opened up a path through the water with a strong east wind. The wind blew all that night, turning the seabed into dry land. So the people of Israel walked through the sea on dry ground with walls of water on each side. Then the Egyptians, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and charioteers, followed them across the bottom of the sea. But early in the morning, the Lord looked down on the Egyptian army from the pillar of fire and cloud, and he threw them into confusion. Their chariot wheels began to come off, making their chariots impossible to drive. Let's get out of here, the Egyptians shouted. The Lord is fighting for Israel against us. When all the Israelites were on the other side, the Lord said to Moses, raise your hand over the sea again. Then the waters will rush back over the Egyptian chariots and charioteers. So as the sun began to rise, Moses raised his hand over the sea. The water roared back into its usual place and the Lord swept the terrified Egyptians into the surging currents. The waters covered all the chariots and charioteers, the entire army of Pharaoh, of all the Egyptians who had chased the Israelites into the sea. Not a single one survived. Now, this scene right here is one that has been made in movies multiple times. It is a dramatic moment in the history of the world. There have been countless documentaries that have come and tried to, uh, to decipher exactly where it is that the Hebrew people crossed this Red Sea. It's been um, countless uh, scientists who have tried to explain how it happened, the east wind of this area that blows so hard. I said Red Sea, and the Hebrew term there is actually uh, Yom Suf. Yom, sea, suf being reed. It's actually the sea of reeds. It's a mistranslation when we call it the Red Sea. What it, what it should have been called was the sea of reeds. Now, why is this significant? Here's an artist's depiction of what the sea of reeds um, of this whole area w- would have looked like. That first picture, yeah. Um, this is kind of an artist's description of that moment when they're crossing over. If you see, it's the people of Israel, 600,000 plus all of the scragglers, they said, that uh, were behind them. And the pillar of fire that once was leading the way has now gone to their rear guard to protect them. Could you imagine being in that big group of 600,000 and then you're the ones who see the Egyptians coming? Somebody tell Moses. Three days later, the Egyptians are coming. We should do something. Um, could you imagine playing the game of telephone in there? What, what happens when it gets to the front? Somebody wants fries? I don't So here's uh, the, the scenario, this, this beautiful artist uh, rendering of what it looked like. Now, here's what the Sea of Reeds looks like today. You see all these tall reeds? Anybody ever been down to a sea where these big things grow up? And then, and then here's another picture of it as well. Sea of Reeds. You understand why it's called the Sea of Reeds? Now, here's an interesting thing. When, when the water is going out, the, the water parts, but these reeds are probably still there. And so as they begin to walk through these reeds, God's doing something here. God's talking to them in a way that they understand. See, one of the things, because they had been there for 400 years that they were familiar with, they were familiar with the, the Egypt, Egypt's gods and the way in which they worshipped Egypt. In fact, many of them probably worshipped the same way. Why? Because that's what they knew. 
that's what was forced upon them for hundreds of years. There's a temple built for Ramses II. And in this temple is this giant courtyard that was covered. And uh, this is uh, one of the pictures of it. If you can see inside this temple, there are all of these giant columns. Now, Pastor Scott up at Riverside has been here to this, uh, this temple. And he says, if you know Scott, Scott is, uh, looks like Ichabod Crane. He's um, like 6'5", but he's real lanky. And his arms are just like huge, just long wingspan. He said he tried to put his arms around him and he just couldn't. They were so massive. And everywhere you go, it's just column, 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 column. Here's another picture of it um, right here. You can see how compact they are, just pressed one on top of another. Now, one of the things that, uh, that we miss because these are ruins is the roof. There would have been a roof over this. Now, if you put a roof on a building like this with all these columns, it's going to get very dark. At the end of uh, the room, you come in through this room. On that last picture, you can see where you came into the room. And then at the other end was the only source of light. It was a hole cut into um, the roof or these windows that were at the end. And so what it signified was you were going through this, these reeds into the place of light. In other words, you're going through this sea of reeds to get to God. God, of course, in this instance, is believed to be Ramses, the Pharaoh. He was the source of light. In order for you to make this pilgrimage from darkness into light, from um, a place of ignorance into a place of knowledge, to go from where you were into the place of God, you needed to go through these sea of reeds to find God. Do you see what God is doing for the people of Israel? God is taking this, this building, this temple, this, this scene of oppression for them, the symbol of oppression. And as he takes them through the literal sea of reeds, he is showing them, I, I am the one. I am the one who brings you through this sea. I am the one that gives you strength. I am the one who has been leading you through the wilderness through a cloud and light. I am God. He's speaking to them in a way in which they understand, but he's reshaping what they understand. He's reaching out to them in a way so that they will understand what he is saying, but he's reframing their identity. As they left Egypt, they were slaves. But he's trying to show them that they are sons and daughters of the Most High God. He's taking them from a point, if you remember when they leave, um, when they leave Egypt, uh, Moses, God tells Moses to, to tell his people to go ask the Egyptians um, for some things. And the Egyptians just go, here, have everything. Gold and silver and fine linens, just take it all. He's showing them you've been moved from a place of nothing to a place where everything is. He's reshaping their identity. He's reforming who they believe themselves to be. Because the fact of the matter is, if, if he just released them into freedom, they would still identify themselves as slaves. For hundreds of years, that's all they've known. 
All they have known is oppression. All they have known is how someone told them to live their life. God needed to transform who they were. I was watching a movie the other night um, called The Shawshank Redemption. Have you ever seen it? Yeah, great movie. Such a wonderful movie. And, there, and as I was watching it later on in, in our pastor's meeting, I just had all of these images of, of the Shawshank Redemption um, coming to my mind. And, and one of them was um, Andy, when he escapes from um, his prison, um, goes through this, instead of the Sea of Reeds, it's the Sea of Pooh, uh, right? That he comes through the sewer, uh, 500 yards of sewer when he comes through, and it's reshaping how he sees himself. And he comes to the other side, and he strips off his shirt and standing in the rain there. It's just this beautiful image. Um, but, but the other thing that I really uh, stuck with was Red, Morgan Freeman's character. If you remember when um, Andy asks him about his freedom, what does Red say? I can't do it. I'm an institutional man, Andy. I have lived my life, most of my life in this place, with someone telling me when to get up, when to go to bed, when to take a shower, when to go to the bathroom, when to eat. I don't think I could live on the outside. For too long have I lived in captivity. And so when Red eventually does receive his freedom, you see him go through these moments where he's shaky and he doesn't believe that he can do it. But the words and encouragement of his friend Andy remind him that he's no longer a captive but free. And so he breaks the bounds of of slavery and oppression and, and who he used to be by what? Breaking his parole. But, you know, and he goes down to Mexico and, and he finds Andy on a beach. Something we wouldn't do today, but back then it was perfectly fine. Um, It's this idea that the people of of Israel could not live their life outside of captivity unless God changed them. Unless God shaped their identity, reshaped their identity. Unless God spoke into their lives, this is who you used to be. But this is who you are. So I'm, so I'm going to reshape who you are. I'm going to teach you who I long for you to be. And it doesn't happen overnight. It begins with the sea of reeds. And, it be, and then it carries on for 40 years in the desert. And there's a lot that we'll get to about that. But one of the things that I want to point to is, is the fact that God was reshaping the identity of Egypt at this time as well. Remember, I talked a few weeks ago about the fact that Egypt never recovers from this. Egypt never becomes a world power again in in our history. This devastated them, but, but it reshaped them. And a lot of amazing Christian movements come out of Egypt. What's happening here is the last form of oppression for the people Hebrew. You know, they've taken all of their wealth as they've left, but Egypt still has power. And God goes, no. The sign of that power, the armies and the king are gone. So the people Egypt, the people of Egypt, what do you think they're going through? I love the fact that they have been through these ten plagues, that the hand of God has literally reached down and done amazing things in their land. 
But it is only when they're in the middle of the sea and their chariot wheels start falling off that they're like, wow, it really is a God that's working for the Israelis and not us. Now we get it. But they wanted to hold on so long to who they were that they were not willing to let God reshape them. Look, that happens to the people of Israel in the desert too. But right here, they're holding on so much to who they believe they are that they're not willing to let God change their identity. I wonder how often we do that as well. How often we hold on to who we think we are when God desperately wants to change us. God's like, man, you're so much more than that. You're so much more than who you believe yourself to be if you would just allow me to pour my love into you. But we keep riding our chariots and we keep plunging forward as if we are in control. All the while, God's like, hey, do you see the pillar of fire? That's me. The cloud, me. Parting of the Red Sea, nobody stopped to go, that's interesting. Me. How often do we stand firm on our chariot believing that we know what is right? When all the while God is saying, I am. I am. I am the one who leads you from death to life. Because that's what's happening here. The Hebrew people are leaving a culture that was based around death. What are the most prominent features in Egypt today? Pyramids. What are they? Tombs. Egypt is a land marked. It's a big graveyard. When a pharaoh became pharaoh, they began to build his grave focused on death. What do the Hebrew people say to Moses when they're like, whoa, now what's going to happen? What do they say? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? And God finally says, why are you talking to me? Just go. I'm leading you from death to life. So here's the question. How many of us need to get off a chariot today? How many of us need to realize that God's moving us from death to life? August got up here a a little bit ago during the the worship time and said that she feels like somebody's on this moment of breakthrough. And prayer people go to the back and Jenna leans over to me. She goes, that wasn't planned, was it? And I'm like, it's never planned, darling. Have you learned nothing from our services? We don't plan anything. It just happens. Um, Maybe somebody is right there at the edge of the sea. Maybe you're not willing to walk into the water yet because the water's still there and it's scary. And you're waiting for Moses to part and for God to walk down the center of the aisle to lead you. Maybe you're on your chariot running into the sea, still holding on to the belief that you are who you think you are. Maybe it's time to reshape your image. Maybe it's time to begin to see yourself the way that God sees you. Not as a child of death and depression, but as a son, a daughter of life, an heir to the kingdom of heaven. The worship team is coming back up right now and they're going to um, close us.
with some times of response. And the prayer team is going to be in the back. If, if you desire, if you're, if you're in this moment where you need to see the waters parted, if you're in this moment where you're holding on to your chariot and you need to get off, if you're in a moment where who you believe yourself to be is no longer who you long to be, let them pray for you. Go back. Open yourselves up to the movement of the Spirit. I guarantee you, um, who I think that I am is not who God wants me to be. Even where I am today, I know God has something different. I think for all of us, where we are, God says, that's great, but I want you to keep going. Keep understanding more and more of the fact that you're my child. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you. We thank you for the mighty acts of salvation that you have shown us. The act of saving an entire nation. The act of saving two entire nations, God. We thank you for the saving grace of Jesus Christ who reached out to us while we were worshiping other idols, while we found ourselves lost and worshiped to greed or this world or ourselves, we cried out. And instead of turning your back, you responded by sending your son, by sending your son to give his life so that we might have ours, so that we might move from death to life. God, help us to understand that. Help us to reshape our identities. That we are no longer slaves to this world or to anything that wants to oppress us, but we are sons and daughters of the King of Kings. God, we thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name.